Welcome. Welcome to this course on distributed parameter systems. My name is Hans Swart and I will guide you through this course. This course will be full of mathematics, full of Hilbert spaces, infinitesimal generators, transfer functions, stabilizability. All these concepts will be treated. But however, more, most important of all is the motivation. Why are we doing these things? Why can I get enthusiastic for this subject? And the motivation is next. So, a lot of motivating examples around. Drying of paint, uh, chemical reactors, spacecrafts, all these kind of things. However, I want to, I've chosen two examples, two applications I have been involved in. First example, first application. Here you see it. A lot of potatoes. More Dutch you cannot get it. What is the problem here? The problem is that these potatoes are stored for a long period. But they are living organisms, so they produce heat. And they, so they need to be cooled. But of course, since they are living organisms, you don't have to cool them too much. Then they get frozen. So the control problem is really to control the temperature in the bulk. In the bulk of, tom of tomatoes or potatoes or red peppers, doesn't matter. Living organism. You see also control here. The control is that you can control somehow these fans there. And of course you can make sensors, you can put sensors between these potatoes and measure the temperature. Now this is very complicated. You see also a 3D configuration of potatoes. We simplified it and that's given next. Here you have a schematic point of view. Again in the center there is this bulk of potatoes, this brown part, but then on the left hand side there is this shaft. And in this shaft I'm assuming that there is a cooling device and a fan. And this fan blows air through this cooling device, making a temperature in this shaft. So I can control, say, the airspeed by controlling the van, and I can control the temperature by controlling the temperature of the cooling device, the cooling block. What's important, you see that this air, air is circulating around. So what do I assuming? I have a uniform temperature in this shaft, and at the bottom of my bulk I have this temperature. The air is moving through this bulk. Hence, what comes out is a temperature of this air. So the air at the bottom of this bulk has the temperature T0. At the top of the bulk it has the temperature Ta, air temperature, at position L at time T. Note that I have the x-coordinate is going from bottom up top I call L. I assume that here there is no loss of temperature, so what is going into this cooling device is somehow the air temperature the same as in the bulk. What is happening, I've, you've seen here maybe already three variables in this bulk, and I will show you. 
in a little bit more detail. Here I've given five potatoes. Of course, there are many more, but it's, as I told you, it's a detail for you. Now are the variables. The potatoes have the temperature Tp. Of course, that changes with time and with height, yeah? Lower, lower in the bulk, they will have a cooler temperature because they are down more hit by this cool air that comes from below. Here I have, between these potatoes, I have the air temperature. And this, this air is moved, is forced by this van to move through these potatoes. Hence there is a speed of air in this potato bulk. And that I denote by V. So. We calculate here. In the shaft I have temperature of cooling device, temperature in the shaft, and the, the speed of air, this airflow given by the fan. And then in the bulk I have the velocity of the air, the air temperature, the product temperature. Now here we made a model of. We also assume that we have an outside temperature, which is also affecting the temperature in the shaft. Here we have it. How is the temperature in the shaft changing? By the air hitting this cooling device. Hits there, this, there is a temperature difference that causes the temperature in the shaft to change. That is depending on how fast this air moves through this cooling device. Hence, I have the phi there. Also, the temperature of the air and the shaft are mixed. Second term. The third term of this first equation, only the first equation, is of course the outside temperature. That also affects the temperature in the shaft. Then I have the temperature in the air. In the air in the bulk. What do I know there? The temperature is changing. What's the first equation saying? Basically, it moves through. Basically, if there would be no potatoes, then it would just move through. So the temperature would just move up, because these air particles just move up. But there are potatoes, so there is an exchange of temperature there. There's a heat exchange. The third equation is saying how the product temperature, so the temperature of the potatoes, is changing. They are living organisms, so they produce heat. That's given here. Yeah, they produce heat. All these M's are constants. Yeah? And of course, the temperature of these products is affected by the air temperature. That's precisely what we want. We want to cool them. So we want to affect these product temperatures, yeah, with potatoes temperatures. Here, 
it just says that the temperature of the air in the bottom of the bulk equals the temperature in the shaft. And this is known as a boundary condition for these PDEs. That was my first example. The second example is very much the same in, in liking. It also has to do with agricultural techniques. It's the UV disinfection. You can see here there are pipes and there is water going through, polluted water, water containing bacteria. These light blue tubes there, they radiate UV light. And that is just killing the bacteria that are in this water. Now you could think of that this is one step in, in the drinking water process. It's just killing bacteria. For, drink, for producing drinking water you need to do many steps and this can be one of them. At the moment it's applied, these kind of techniques are applied in greenhouses. Of course, and for the water that is going to the plants, it's not that important if there is mud in it, sand particles. You don't like that in your drinking water, but plants don't mind. But of course, what plants mind if there are bacteria in it? They can, of course, cause illness, cause sickness into these plants. So they are killed by these UV lights. Again, we have not looked at really this configuration which is on this picture. We simplified it. This is how we simplified it. We assumed that we just had one tube where the water is moving in from that side to this side. And in this tube, there is in the middle, there is this UV light. Yeah, UV tube. So, dirty water comes in here, here, hopefully clean. Now, there are a few things to know for the model. This is zero, this is L, this is the X, this is the X direction. And here I have still a radial direction. And the radius of this tube, I take R2, and the radius of this light tube, I take R1. And now you can just go to standard models and for how water is moving through a pipe like this. And that's given here. You get a certain velocity profile. And this is how the water, the velocity profile in the x-direction, so in this direction, is changing depending on the radial direction. So V of x is really giving the velocity in the x-direction, but it changes, it's a function, depending how far it is in this tube, at which place it is in this tube. Why? Standard model assumes that it always is that there is friction at this side and that there is no velocity at the boundary. That of course causes the water to stop there and to move faster in the middle. And that's precisely what this equation is telling you. So this is just uh, the velocity profile of this water going to this tube. We need it then for the concentration, yeah, the concentration of bacteria 
but it's somehow independent of it. And here we have the model for the concentration. The first line is saying how the concentration is changing with respect to time. And basically it's saying that it just moves through it. The first term, this V times the spatial, is just saying, oh, what is in there just moves. What was here a few seconds later will be there. That's just the first part. But there is diffusion. And since I'm in a cylinder, I use cylindrical coordinates. And this, is this, this term is precisely the fusion in a cylindrical coordinate. Diffusion means in that, these, that there is a mixing of a, a moving of these particles. This last term with this k there, that's really our influence. It's k times c, and k is this killing factor of the bacteria. k is proportional to the light intensity, light intensity of this UV light. And hence, this is my control variable. This is what I would like to control. This boundary condition. The derivative with respect to the x-coordinate, so I look in the direction of the tube, the x-coordinate is at place zero, it's zero. That means there are no jumps in the concentrations. The concentration left and right, so just where it comes in and just when it entered, is the same. Use the continuity relation. Second last one tells us that the concentration at the boundary of this tube is zero. Why is that? Now, the, the speed is zero, so these particles are standing still. So they are they receive this UV light all the time, so they are killed all. The last one. The last one is just saying that the concentration in the beginning is the concentration that came in. So, this C0 is also an input, but it's more like a disturbance input. We cannot control it. So we have two inputs here control input and a disturbance input. What will be our measurement? Of course the concentration at x is L, the concentration that comes out. And basically what we want to do, what is now the control problem, is make this as small as possible by controlling k. Of course and k has limitations and in, in things like that, there are, it's a real control problem. But in essence, we see the following. The model given by these two applications are described by partial differential equations. In these partial differential equations, you can distinguish inputs and outputs. And the question is how to design these inputs and outputs. Now, we will only do partially it. We will, will make a start of it. But the motivation is really coming from these type of applications. Yeah? Controlling partial differential equations. So, semi-group and generators. At this moment it will probably tell you nothing, yeah? But I gave in this because it will be a long section and it's somehow important. And I will guide you and through this section and see the examples. Why have people come up with this? What is the Motivation. Now the aim is to learn, of course, these concepts of semi-group and, and generators. And why? In the motivation section, we have seen that we have models 
are examples by partial differential equations. These partial differential equations must have a solution. Otherwise it's very stupid to talk about solutions of a PDE if there was no solution. So we want to learn in this section when do they have a solution, what can we say about a solution. The one important remark to be made, because in many examples you can say there is a solution and we cannot write it down. So we will focus really on existence of solutions and not that much about the form of these solutions. For simple examples we can do it, but in general forget about it. Example, transport equation, one of the simple examples. Suppose you have an interval of length 1. And there you have this simple partial differential equation. The, the change with respect to time is the same as the change with respect to x. And then at point 1, at this end, it's set to 0 and then there is an initial condition given. At this moment you will not know why this is called a transport equation. We will see it later. I will not, not tell you now, we will see it later. The other one, the other one is the diffusion equation. Suppose I have, and this is literally now good that I have a metal bar, because this diffusion equation, the first derivative with respect to time, is the second derivative with respect to space, is really telling you how heat is diffusing yeah, in, in a metal bar. It's only one thing, yeah? if you have pollution in a river, then you will have a similar type of equation. If you can, you can look back to the equations of the UV reactor, you will also see a diffusion there. Yeah? These bacteria are also diffusing. Now I've chosen this example, I've given at this end and at that end no flux, and again I have given boundary conditions. So these are the simple PDEs which will guide us this section, this part two. So, now we come to one of the subjects which is in the heading, semi-groups. But before I tell you this, I will have to point out two things. I assume that you are familiar with the concept Hilbert space. I've given here a picture of Hilbert, so he's, he will guide us through this course. So Z will be our Hilbert space. I also assume that you are familiar with the concept of a bounded linear operator, and I've taken the standard notation L of Z as being the class of bounded linear operator from Z to Z. So, if you are not familiar with these concepts, then I advise you to study them before I continue. Now we come to the definition of a semigroup. That's a very abstract definition. You see three bullets, there are almost four I would say, there is also that at every time T of T must be a linear bounded operator. So what is a semigroup? It's a mapping from zero infinity till two the bounded linear operators, which has the following properties. At time zero, so T of zero, it must be the identity operator. Then this product of two operators must be the sum of the times. So T of S times T of T must be the same as T T plus S, for all positive times. Then the last one is really where the name strong continuity comes from, because if I go back in time, 
so t t z zero, then I converge to z of zero. So I have a notation that's t t and then subscript t greater or equal than zero, and I use a shorthand c zero semigroups. So I will most times refer to z zero semigroups and not to strongly continuous semigroups, but it's the same. Now this definition may puzzle you, yeah? How could anybody come up with a definition like this? And to see that a little bit, we go to a, we go to a motivation, but I go a little bit forward in time, because we will see that this is really where the semigroup comes from, but at the moment I'm just asking you to assume that you see z0, tt, z0, is a solution of an abstract linear time invariant differential equation. So you see tt as the mapping from initial state till state at time t. Now if you see that, then the first property is really trivial. Mapping at time zero and I map to time zero, I'm still at the same place. So it's the identity operator. Z0 is mapped to Z0, so the only operator that does that for every Z0 is the identity operator. Second one. For fixed T, TT is linear. Hey, but we have the linearity of the differential equation. What is the linearity of the differential equation telling you? That if I start here in a sum and I walk T seconds, I end up here in the sum of the corresponding solutions. But since I said you have to see this mapping as the state time zero time t, it's a linear operator. It should be a linear operator. Now, this so-called semi-group property. I take here a time bar. Now this bar is my time bar. Time zero, time s, time t. What does the first thing tell you? First I go from z0 to the tsz0, and then I wait a moment, and I continue. I continue for t seconds. So the mapping from here to here, that's ts doing that. Then I see my state, my, my position at this moment, I just see it as my as my initial state, my new initial state, and I run for t seconds, and I end up there. But wait one moment. I assume that the differential equation was time invariant. What does that mean? That if I stop and I restart my system, the system does not have an own clock. So, going here to there, splitting the time interval in two, doesn't matter. I could just one, one. What is it? Here it gives me Ts, then I make Tt, I end up here, but here I make the complete time jump, T plus S. So the semi-group, or the T, must have this property just by the time invariance of my differential equation. The last one, that's the strong continuity. And somehow you could imagine by this by just looking at, if you would think yourself, eh, I want to define properties of a solution of an abstract differential equation. You would come up with the first bullet, the second bullet, and the third bullet. But the fourth bullet, this tt of x0, if I go back in time it converges to z0, is maybe not that logical. 
And basically, that is the key idea. That's the powerful idea that makes semi-groups so powerful. And it's basically these two people, Hill and Phillips, together with Yoshida, who, who defined this concept just after the Second World War. If you look in their book, this is the book of Hill and Phillips, massive book. It's very important just to read the introduction. Then you can also hear the, or from first hand, you see the history of how it was grown. Now you see this is already an old book, but the good thing is that you can now have this book for free from internet. So, enough about these abstract semi-groups. Let's just think about a semi-group that you probably know, but never heard that it was a semi-group. That is just the exponential of a matrix. So I've given here a very simple matrix, one, two, three, in a zero, in the lower corner, and then I calculate e to the power at. Now, you must believe me that this is the answer, or you check it yourself. But the good thing is we can check all these properties. Now, that in time t is zero, that is the identity is very easy. Yeah, you apply your exponential of zero is, is one. The other one that is, has this product property is also logical. Just do it. That it's a linear mapping, of course it's a matrix. That's always a linear mapping. And that it's continuous, it's clear. Exponentials are continuous. So these are really the very simple examples exponentials of a matrix. But these are not the examples that we will focus on. We will focus on partial differential equations. So, what is a partial differential equation? It has a, has a spatial and a time component. So we had this very simple example with matrices, but now we come to a real example. And it's even simple. What is it? I've chosen Z, my Hilbert space, now is L201. So it's a function space. So the semigroup maps Z into Z for a fixed T. So it should map functions on functions. So TT of F should be a function of X again. And it's how it's defined. Defined as TTF evaluated in X is Fx plus T if x plus t is less than 1. If x plus t is bigger than 1, then I define it to be 0. Looks very complicated, but I made a picture. Here you see it. The black one is f, and what you see, the red one is tt of f. You can convince yourself that it's uh, almost the correct answer for t is a half. So what do you see? You see this solution have moved to the left. And if you think about it, then it's also clear. Look at the definition again. It's f of x plus t. There is a shift there. You also see that if t is larger than 1, then the t, t, the semigroup, will map every f on 0. Because this whole initial condition, this f, has been shifted away. So we have seen some examples of C0 semigroups. Before I continue with it, I want to tell you some important properties. 
you see in the finer dimensional case it were exponentials. Now they are not really exponentials in Hilbert spaces but they inherit some of these properties. The nice thing is that the semigroup is always exponentially bounded. So the norm of TT is less than a constant m times e to the power omega t for every t positive and this omega and this m are really depending on my semigroup. So a semigroup cannot grow faster than exponentially. So this is a lemma and I've taken the freedom of proving it. The first step, and basically I skipped this step. The first step you have to do is show that the semigroup is uniformly bounded on a finite time interval. I've chosen here the time interval 0, 1. So the norm of the semigroup, the supremum over the interval 0, 1 is bounded and I call this constant m. Where does this come from? This is basically a property that comes from the strong continuity and the uniform boundedness theorem. So note then that you, since the semigroup in 0 is 1, the semigroup is of course the identity but its norm is 1, I will have that m will be bigger or equal to 1. And now I show you how you get the exponential bound. Here you see it. What did I do? I wrote down all the steps. It looks horrible, but it's very simple. You look at a time instant bigger than 1. So you write this time instant as n plus t0. And t0 is between 0 and 1. Then you can write the semigroup at time t is the semigroup at n plus t0. But what do we know about a semigroup with a plus? we can write it as a product of two semigroups. So we can write the t of n plus t0 as t of n times t of t0. And then we have the norm property. The norm of the product is less or equal than the product of the norms. And that you see here. Now, the semigroup evaluated at times t0 is less than m because t0 is between 0 and 1. So what do I have to do? I have to evaluate the norm at tn. But n I can write as 1 plus n minus 1. Again with this plus I can write it as the t of 1 times the t of n minus 1. The t of 1 I write as m. n minus 1 I go as 1 plus n minus 2. And you see there is a whole product of m appearing. And that you see in this step, almost the last step, m, n plus 1. And now the only thing you have to do is relate this n to the time you are. And n is less than the time you were. So what do you find? You find here the log of m times t. And this is the whole proof. You see how powerful this semigroup property is in proving this exponential bound. Generators. We have discussed semigroups, but this session is called semigroups and generators. So now we come to generators. We have seen that a semigroup e to the power at with a, a matrix 
that indeed was a semi-group, satisfied all the conditions. But now I've given you a semi-group, e to the power at, just a finite dimensional semi-group, and I'm asking you, so given this very simple matrix-valued function, what is a? This is a little bit of a strange puzzle. Normally in a course on, on exponentials of matrix, you got given a, calculate the exponential. But now I give you the exponential and I ask you what is a? The answer is very simple. Remember that an exponential of a matrix, if I differentiate that, I get a e to the power at. a just comes in front of it. Hence, I also know that the semigroup in zero is the identity, so if I differentiate at zero, I get the A matrix back. Now you can do it by the example on the previous transparency, and you will see that you precisely get the A that I have given before. Now I have a general C0 semigroup, and as the idea is that I want to differentiate it in order to find the A. This has a problem. The semigroup is only strongly continuous. So, can I differentiate it? Now, the answer to it, I only differentiate it when it's allowed. And here you see it. On the first half, I'm saying an element is in the domain of A, so in the domain of the operator that I want to define, if this limit exists. Now, in that limit, you definitely recognize the derivative at zero. The semigroup at zero was the identity, so it's what is standing there, the semigroup evaluated in t, times set zero, minus the semigroup at zero, evaluated at set zero, divided by t. So there is a derivative, and it's an element is in the domain of A if this limit exists. If this limit exists, then I know that it has a value, and this value I call a of z0. So I've now given first the domain, and then the generator. And this a is called the generator, the infinitesimal generator of my semigroup tt. Let's do an example. And I take this very simple semigroup, which was this shift. This picture there is given. Yeah, we started with an initial condition, and then it was shifting towards the direction zero. And I would like to, this was a C0 semigroup, I would like to calculate the infinitesimal generator of this semigroup. Remember that I have two different definitions of this semigroup, or different values, depending on x. What I'm doing in the first part is I'm taking x here. And I'm taking t that small so that, it's, that x is not hit by zero. What is then the outcome of it? Semigroup minus f evaluated in x is f of x plus t minus f of x. And of course in the denominator nothing changes, it's just t. But if you look at the expression on that side, it's f, x plus t, minus f of x, divided by t. This limit exists if f is differentiable. And what is then the limit? It's just the derivative of f. 
that was the answer for x being less than 1. Less than 1 I cannot do always, because then there is always a small time such that 0 had not, have not hit that x. But let's look at this one. We had here always, and it was shifting in that way, here we always, and now I want to evaluate it at 1. But what is the value for t positive at 1? It's always 0, yeah? 0 is just shifted in. And what do I get if I want to evaluate semigroup f minus f at 1? I get 0 minus f1. But I divide it by t. The denominator, again, in this case, has not changed. Hence so what happens, I have something in the denominator that goes to 0. The only way this limit can exist is that f of 1 is 0. So, summarizing, we find that the domain of f are all functions which are differentiable. Now here it boils down to that f has to be absolutely continuous. That means that it has a derivative which is an L1 function. Of course I want that A maps into my state space, which is L2. So I have to assume additionally that the derivative is in L2. So that's for the smoothness. And then I have a boundary condition. F of 1 must be 0. And what is this A? A is nothing else than the derivative of F. So I have found for this semi-group, I found an infinitesimal generator. You see, boundary conditions appear naturally. Now we have this lemma. So remember, how have I defined A? By only saying that the derivative at zero exists. But what is now the nice outcome, and it has to do with the semi-group property, etc., that if I'm assuming that t of t, z0, is differentiable at zero, it is differentiable at every time. Meaning, or formulated differently, if I start in the domain of A, the semi-group evaluating on such an element stays in the domain of A. Furthermore, the derivative of the semi-group times z of 0 equals a z t t z 0. But look at this expression once more. Now call z of t a function, a Hilbert space valued function, z of t, just the semigroup at time t times z 0. This derivative says in that z dot exists. z is differentiable. The function z is differentiable and the derivative equals a of z. Furthermore, z at time 0 is just the semigroup at time 0 times z 0, so it's z 0. So I have that it satisfies a differential equation and it has a given initial condition. Hence, summarizing this, we have found, by just looking at the semigroup, we have found a solution to this abstract differential equation, z dot equals a z of t with the given initial condition. This may look very abstract, but we started with partial differential equations. And we have now found somehow with this semi-group in this generator, we have now found solutions to some abstract differential equation. Were we interested in this abstract differential equation? Yes and no. 
Basically, we are interested in the PDEs. We want to know if a PDE has a solution. So how can I relate these two? First, I have to make some observations. Z of t, so this abstract, this Hilbert space value function, is just by its name, it's at every time instant, it takes values in the Hilbert space. Now assume, as, as we have seen in our example, so it's not really a strong assumption, but it's good for the argument, yeah? assuming that the Hilbert space is a function space, for instance L2. That means that at every fixed time instant, z of t, I still have that z of t as a function. So if I freeze time, I still have a function of the spatial variable. What does this tell me? Z of t I can evaluate in x. Yeah, so time and place are now independent of each other. And I write it shortly as being z x comma t. That's the first thing what I do. If I now wonder if I differentiate the function z with respect to time, since I now know that z is somehow partly hidden is a function of time in space, and I explicitly write down the space again, the spatial variable, then I know that I have to write z dot as being the partial derivative with respect to time. So there we see already the first thing of a PDE popping up. There is a partial derivative. Let's continue. Let's take what I had also just found. Eh? a to be the operator, the derivative with respect to x. And I consider this abstract differential equation, z dot equals az. This a has of course a domain and, and, and these boundary conditions are in this domain, but at the moment just fix, eh, think of a being just the derivative with respect to x, and I look at this equation, z dot equals az. First one, z dot, we already know how to write it. But think one moment, a of z, z is a function with respect to space, also with respect to time. So the a of zt, if I want to write it down for the function depending on time and place, I get the following. I get that z is, this abstract differential equation is the same as writing the derivative with respect to time equals the derivative with respect to space. And in the domain of A, there was this boundary condition. So I have now a PDE with a boundary condition. But this is all looking backwards, eh? going from an abstract differential equation to a PDE. Of course, we start with a PDE. How do we do that? What do you do? First you if you have given a PDE, you try to recognize the state in the state space, yeah, with space z, the variable z in the space set. And then you write your PDE as a partial derivative of z with respect to time equals something where only spatially derivatives are popping up. This right-hand side, you, these containing spatially derivatives, etc., you write as a of z. And the domain are precisely those functions for which these derivatives exist. 
and also the boundary conditions which have to hold for every time instant yeah for every and every time instant you have boundary conditions for instance and the derivative of the value is zero you put that in the domain of a as well and there you have it so now we have seen semi-groups generators every semi-group has a generator but normally you don't start with a semi-group you start with a PDE so we still have the question how to get from the PDE how to get to A and how to get from A to the semi-group now this question will be answered in this very short section we have an A and now the question is does that generate a Z0 semi-group now the answer is given can be found in the book of these two people, Hill and Phillips, and it said the Hill Yoshida theorem, yeah? uh, established shortly, I think, in 48, so shortly after the Second World War. But I will not discuss this theorem. This theorem you can find in, in many books. But it's very hard to apply this theorem. So if you have a PDE and you wonder, does it generate a Z0 semigroup, the Hill-Yoshida theorem is somehow most times too difficult to use. And the nice thing is there is a much simpler theorem which does not give you always the right, always the answer, but gives you the answer in a special case, namely contraction semigroups. So we move now to contraction semigroups and there we will find which A do generate a contraction semigroup? What is a contraction semigroup? A contraction semigroup is just a Z0 semigroup with one extra property, namely that the norm of TT evaluated at Z0 is less or equal than the norm of Z0. Remember, you have to see now T, T of Z0 as the solution of an abstract differential equation evaluated at time t. So it says that the norm at time t of this solution is less than the norm at time zero, because at time zero the semigroup was the identity. So you can see the norm of z0 also as the norm of t0, z0. Look at this picture. Here I have given a line, which is the norm of the initial condition, and on the horizontal axis there is the time. So if you look how now normal semi-group, yeah, not a contraction semi-group could move, it could grow. However, contraction semi-group, this red line is really an upper bound. You start here, and you will never get above it. So this red line is really a forbidden line for a contraction semigroup. You start at that red line at time zero. You could stay on it, then you really move horizontal, you lose nothing, or you could go down. Note that a norm always is positive, eh? so I cannot cross the horizontal line. What kind of property can we get from a contraction semigroup? And how important is that we have a contraction semigroup on a Hilbert space. On a Hilbert space, the square of the norm is equal to the inner product. 
So what can I say? The norm of tt, z0, norm squared, is the same as the inner product of tt, z0, tt, z0. If z0 is in the domain of A, tt, z0 is differentiable, and the derivative is A, tt, z0, as we have seen before. So let's differentiate this squared norm. I have to use the product rule. And what do I find? The derivative of the norm, the squared norm, is equal to the inner product a t t z0 t t z0 inner product closed plus inner product t t z0 a t t z0. Looks very horrible. Remember, there is one special time where the semigroup is, is really simple. It's time t is zero. So evaluate now this equality at time t is zero. What do I find? All these semigroups disappear. So I have that the derivative of the squared norm at time zero is a z zero z zero plus the inner product z zero a z zero. But what do we have? Remember the picture I had. At time zero, you started at a certain height and you had to decrease. What does that mean at time zero for the derivative? Derivative cannot be positive, so the derivative must be negative or equal to zero. So what do I find? If I have a contraction semigroup and I look at its generator, then this inner product of a z0 z0 plus z0 a z0 must be less or equal than zero. And this has to hold for every element in the domain of a. This then is part one of the Loomer-Phillips theorem. And this gives a necessary and sufficient condition for a semigroup to generate a contraction semigroup. So we have a contraction semigroup even only if condition one, but condition one, we just saw it's very natural. Condition two is in that A minus the identity, the range of this operator is the whole of Z. You can even write it in an equivalent condition by saying A minus the identity is boundedly invertible. I will not prove this theorem, I've given an, a glance of how you, how you could prove it, but I will apply it. And we apply it again into our uh, simple like PDs where we started off. First example, hey, A was the derivative. So let's take A to be the derivative with respect to the spatial variable. And we take as domain, we take F in its derivative in L2, and I'm assuming that f at 1 is 0. Remember that this was precisely the generator that we had of this shift semigroup. So we know already that it generates a C0 semigroup, but just let's think about it a little bit. Can we prove it with this Loomer-Phillips theorem? Now, that this domain is dense is, is very easy. Yeah? C infinity functions are even dense in L2. So here I'm only asking for L2 functions which have a derivative which is in L2. So definitely the domain of A is dense.
So we move to the more important part, this inner product condition. So, what do we have to do? We have to do the following. We have to evaluate the inner product of AZ with Z plus Z with AZ. Now, it looks very abstract if you write it, but our inner product, we are in L2. So our inner product is just the integral, the integral from 0 to 1. And since we are assuming complex functions, we get a complex conjugate in the second variable. What was our A? Our A was just differentiating. So what is the first term becoming? A of Z is just the derivative of Z. Inner product with Z, hey, I have to take the complex conjugate of Z and integrate that from 0 to 1. The term Z, AZ, is just the mirror of this first term. But now look at this term. Hey, derivative of Z, Z. Z, derivative of Z. That's precisely the derivative of the product of Z with Z bar. Hey, now we have integral derivative. They just cancel each other. So what do I get? I get the absolute value of Z evaluated in 0 and in 1. Ha! Remember that in the domain of A we also had the condition that Z of 1 was 0. So if I evaluate it I get 0 minus the absolute value of Z0 squared. Now minus an absolute value is always negative. So I see that this inner product, so which is the first condition in Loomer-Phillips, is satisfied. So now we have to move to the second condition. What do we have to check? We have to check if the range of A minus the identity is everything. But how do you do it? Now, everything, you just take an arbitrary F in L2. And you ask yourself, does there exist a Z such that A minus identity working on Z is equal to this F? Looks very abstract, but remember what is F? F is just an L2 function. What is A? A is the derivative. So A minus the identity Z is just eh, an ordinary differential equation. Derivative of Z minus Z itself should be equal to F. But remember, we want Z to be in the domain of A, so it has to satisfy the boundary condition, Z of 1 equal to 0. Now, now I have a first order differential equation, inhomogeneous, with a boundary condition. It's second year or first year calculus, how to solve it. And here is the solution. So what can we say? We say, hey, a generates a contraction semigroup because all the conditions are satisfied. A is densely defined, this inner product is less or equal than zero, and here I have that the equation A minus identity Z equals to F has a solution, namely precisely given by this integral. And it's very easy to check that this integral, of course Z is absolutely continuous, it's an integral of a function. And it's easy to see that Z of 1 is equal to 0. So it lies in the domain of A. Hence we have solved it. Note that we have already seen the C0 semigroup. 
it's just this shift semigroup. But here we have then that our theorem really tells you that this A generates a Z0 semigroup. Let's move to our second example, which we had in, in section 1.2, yeah? Really the, so A is now the second derivative with respect to space. And here I've given a domain. So I'm assuming that Z and its derivative are absolutely continuous and the second derivative lies in L2. Furthermore, I'm assuming that the derivatives at 0 and at 1 are both equal to 0. Now clearly, A is densely defined. So we have to check the other properties. It goes very similar to the other example, so I have done it a little bit quicker. You write down the inner product AZ with Z plus Z. With AZ, you see, hey, A is the second derivative, inner product is an integral, so I get an integral over the second derivative with Z. And I integrate by part once. So that gives you the third line. But now, look at it. I know that my derivative, the derivative of Z at 1 is equal to 0. That means that that whole term between the square brackets is equal to 0. Furthermore, the second term is an integral over the absolute value. And there is a minus in front of it. Hence, it is negative. So we have again this dissipation property. Yeah? Inner product AZ with Z plus ZAZ is less or equal than 0 for all elements in the domain of A. Now the other one, the last condition, this range condition. So we have to solve A minus identity is F. A is second derivative, F is an arbitrary function, and here you have the solution. I have not given all these steps in the solutions because it's a little bit boring. You just have to solve an ordinary differential equation. Yeah, this ordinary differential e equation that is written there is just the second derivative of z minus z is equal to f, which two boundary conditions. Now, you can solve it by hand, you can solve it with a computer package, but this is the solution. And basically you see, hey, there is a solution which lies in the domain of A, Hence, A generates a contraction semigroup. But we know that A generates a contraction semigroup. But what? Which semigroup? What's the shape of this semigroup? Can we, can we find it? There are two ways of solving it. The first way I will sketch a little bit. You go to the PDE to which A is associated. Second derivative with respect to x equal to the first derivative with respect to time, with these two boundary conditions at the end. There we had the A coming from the PDE. So you can try to solve it, and it's somehow in the first course on PDEs you get how to solve it. You solve it uh, by the separation of variable principles. We do it a little bit different. We look more at the operator A. And what can we see? It's easy to check. A is a self-adjoint operator. And the inverse of A minus identity is compact. 
That you can easily see because this inverse that we have calculated, eh, we have solved a minus the identity z is f. And we found z is blah blah blah, something with f. But we saw that that was an integral operator. Now integral operators are always compact. Now what do we find? from a famous theorem, self-adjoint operators with compact resolvent, they have an orthonormal basis of eigenfunctions. So we know that A, the eigenfunctions of A, will form an orthonormal basis. Hence, what do we do? We solve these equations. We solve the eigenfunction equation. So we solve A lambda n, A phi n is lambda n phi n. And here you have it, for n is zero you have a solution, then you have phi is one, and for positive n's you find cosines. But then you look at the very simple abstract equation, z dot equals az with the initial condition phi n. We know that the solution of this abstract differential equation is given by tt z zero. So z zero is phi n, so it's tt phi n. But we can also solve it, or we can just check the solution. If I'm saying z of t e to the power lambda n t phi of n, then we see that it satisfies this equation. Namely, t is zero. t is zero, then I have just z of zero is phi n. So I found my initial condition back. Differentiate z t. If I differentiate zt, I get lambda n zt. But lambda n zt is lambda n e to the power lambda n t phi n. Lambda n phi n is a phi n. A constant I can do. So what do we see? Z dot, the derivative of z, is equal to a of z. So we have found the solution for a very special initial condition, namely I start in one of the eigenfunctions. If I start in one of the eigenfunctions and I find the solution e to the power lambda n t phi of n. But, last trick, I know phi n is an orthonormal basis. So what does it mean? Any element in my Hilbert space set I can write as a sum z0 phi n in a product with phi n. But now I know that tt is a linear operator. So that means tt working on z0 means tt working on this sum. I can take the sum out. And I can take these constants out. This z0 phi n. And what do I find? tt phi n. But I know they are exponentials. So what do I find in this case? The semigroup evaluated at, or working on z of zero, is this infinite sum. And I leave it there, because if you write it all out, and eh, you write down what lambda n is, you write down phi n is the cosine, you write down uh, the inner product is the integral, it looks a horrible expression. But it's the same expression as the simple expression, which is now at the bottom of this slide. We have seen that somehow semigroups are related to solutions. So at the solutions of z dot equals az. 
But at the moment, we only know that if I start in the domain of A, the semigroup will map again in the domain of A, and so Zt defined by Tt Z0 is in the domain of A. It's also differentiable, and it satisfies the equation. But if I now start with a Z0 which is not in the domain of A, Tt Z0 is well defined, but Tt Z0 is only continuous, so I may not differentiate it, and it does not does not have to lie in the domain of A. So expressions at both sides of the equality sign don't make any sense. Z dot I cannot give a meaning, and A of Zt I cannot give a meaning. But still I would like to generalize this concept of solutions a little bit further, not only for Z0 in the domain of A. And to do that, I have first to define the adjoint of A. What is it? Basically, the adjoint of A is just moving A to the other side, the other side of the inner products. However, that is not always possible. So we do the same trick as we did in, in the domain of A, we only do it when it's allowed. So, W lies in the domain of A star, if, I, if it's possible to write W A offset, as new factor, comma z. And if that's possible, then I define this new factor, this v, as a star w. So if you do that, then you precisely see. So assume now for the moment w is in the domain of a star, then you see that w a of z is equal to a star w, comma z. So I moved a to the other side of the inner products. And that's precisely what A star is doing. Now with this adjoint, with this A star, I can now define the concept of a weak solution. And I make this, weak always means that you do things in the inner product. So I don't look at Z dot equals AZ, no, I look, I first take the inner products, with a W in the domain of A star, and then I differentiate. And now the nice thing is that if ZZ, Z of t is just the semigroup at time t evaluated at a Z0, and Z0 is just an element of, of my Hilbert space, then this is possible. So if I have W t t Z0, and W is in the domain of A star, this expression, which is just a scalar function, is differentiable. And what is the outcome of it? It's precisely the inner product between A star W and Z of t. So if you are allowed to move the A star back to the other side, then you uh, see, hey, the derivative of Z equals AZ. But you are not allowed because Z of t does not have to lie in the domain of a. Now, it's precisely this. So, the semigroup evaluated at Z0 is a weak solution, and weak means in this sense. But normally I will always use now the, the saying the semigroup is a solution of Z dot equals AZ. Meaning that it's in, if Z0 is not in the domain of A, I mean weak solution. If you are familiar with PDEs, this is precisely the concept of a weak or a mild solution in PDEs.
So, we did a lot. And it's good to summarize it now. So we summarize it as follows. As a PDE, so I've given again my very simple shift PDE. Yeah? This was associated with the shift semi-group. Remember, we had here and then it was shifting that way. I've seen that this was, but if you start with a PDE like this, then you write it as z dot equals az. So you forget about the spatial, forget, forget. Yeah, Cauchy mod, you still remember that z at every time instant is still a function, it still lies in the function space. You see, I've given now the solution in the, in the spatial and in the time direction. So it's really a solution of the PDE, you see, time and space. But these black lines and this light blue line are precisely my states. That is what I mean by z of t. So the, the z at time a half is the black line. Yes, there's the shifted initial condition. The initial condition you see as the shape in the beginning. The blue line, the light blue line, is the z at time one and a half. Yeah, so you, you cut really, you don't look at, at a PDE as really as something spatial and time equivalently. No time, you jump in the time, or you look at the process in time, and in the every time instant you see a function of the spatial variable. Yeah? So, as said before, the state is still a function of the spatial variable. The state at every time will be an element in the Hilbert space, z in our notation. And the mapping initial state till state at time t is my semigroup. And there are conditions, so you always start with the a, and there are conditions to tell you which a generates a z0 semigroup. And the nice thing is, this is a semigroup is really a solution, is the solution to this abstract differential equation, which you can see as an abstract language of the PDE. So we can also see the semigroup is just a solution of the PDE, but then the solution seen from time zero to time t. Yeah? 